got massive, massive investments in crypto. If attorneys and and broad and more broadly, if wealth practitioners don't get up to speed pretty quickly, you're gonna be left behind. Welcome to the Wealth Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing good, Brent. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, too. I don't know how it happened, but I feel like I haven't really seen you that much the last couple of days, and it's like there's a there's there's a vacancy in my life, you know? Aw, well, that makes me good to hear. I know. It. I, I feel like it's the same, the same. It's been busy. It's been really busy. I feel like yeah. once the, once the afternoon comes, like 3 mm-hmm. p.m. hits, it just it'll usually fly, which is a good thing, right? That's usually a very very mm-hmm. good thing. But then if I have questions and it's like, oh, okay, this is gotta wait till tomorrow, and then of course something happened in the middle of the night, and that's an urgent thing the next morning, and then we get to 3 p.m. again already, and it just repeats itself. Yeah, it's a it's a vicious cycle. Rachel, <laughs> for, for anybody who doesn't know, Rachel and I work together, so that's why I mentioned that. So we see each other all the time, and I'm sure Rachel gets sick of seeing me. So to not <laughs> see Rachel for uh, like two days, I mean, it's only really been like two days, but to not see you for two days is extremely weird, and I'm not even on vacation. Right? <laughs> I always wonder, though, is it better like that we don't see each other here or like do you prefer right back back when we were at our old firm right i would just always come into your office all the time mm. okay oh there's brent yep i can just walk into your office mm-hmm. now right you can at least press like the decline button in the age of being virtual so True. i kind of wonder what do you think is it is it better this way or mm. i kind of feel like you're baiting me into that and <laughs> i should plead the fifth there you go. Okay. Both <laughs> options have their pluses and minuses. There you go. There you about go. that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll you take think it. the same thing. I was to say, yeah, I'll, I'll probably plead the fifth too. So, okay. <laughs> well, uh, we are very, very glad to be joined this this week on the podcast by Matt McClintock. Matt is a partner at Evergreen Legacy Planning in Evergreen, Colorado, the beautiful Evergreen, Colorado, we should note. Um, Matt, among many things, is an estate planning attorney like us, but unlike us, uh, he is deep into cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera, and blockchain, and we're very happy to chop it up with you today about that, Matt. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. If, uh, you know, for the for the few people who don't know who you are, maybe at least enlighten us with your like 30,000 foot CV. Sure. Uh, so I'm starting my 21st year as an estate planning attorney. Um, that's the only kind of law I've ever practiced. So I am wholly incompetent to do pretty much anything else. And, um, you know, kind of like a lot of folks, I've, I've grown through the estate planning world from from basic stuff to really complex esoteric strategies and got to the point a few years ago where my practice was really focused on sophisticated estate planning for ultra affluent folks. Um, combination of wealth transfer tax planning, income tax leverage, but also a lot of multi-jurisdictional planning, family wealth governance planning, using private trust companies, doing a fair bit of primarily domestic asset protection, trust planning, irrevocable non-grantor trust planning, the whole bit. And, um, it was kind of in in that context that I got dragged somewhat 
unknowingly to the edge of the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which I'm, I'm sure we'll kind of talk about a little bit. But um, starting at the end of 2017 and, and really building to a crescendo now, sophisticated wealth transfer and estate planning for ultra affluent folks who just coincidentally have a lot of crypto is the dominant part of my practice. Yeah, and for some of that crypto, uh, it has made many people ultra affluent who maybe previously were not as ultra affluent. And, and vice versa. And vice versa, yes. <laughs> it swings both both directions for sure. There's a, there's a really interesting phenomenon I think happening. I think we'll touch on this in a bit, but that is the cryptocurrencies, at least from my perspective, have evolved to such an extent that major you know, white shoe financial institutions are trying to get into cryptocurrencies. And I, and I just had a, a conversation with a good friend of mine who works at, at uh, Bank of America. He was talking to me about how they're having very frequent calls with their industry experts about the cryptocurrencies. And, and you know, they're sort of looking into how can they get into cryptocurrencies or get cryptocurrencies onto their various platforms. And they're kind of doing it in this, this indirect way, you know, they invest in a, you know, get uh, clients invested in a company and the company itself has a play in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. So it's not a direct play in cryptocurrency. And I remember him telling me that. And I was like, this is the this is the sign. Mm -hmm. You know, if anybody out there needed a sign that cryptocurrencies are real and they're not going away, that's the sign that mm -hmm. Bank of America is trying to find <laughs> ways to get it on their platform. You know, that's that's a great point. The uh, But the, it's it's been fascinating to see this building. I mean, again, this is part of the crescendo. And to your point, that is just further evidence of, of crypto asset investments coming mainstream. I mean, this is not just for the, you know, this is not just for the millennials who are living in mom's basement, doing, you know, Silk Road type of stuff. This is, I mean, you've got major publicly traded companies that are putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. You've got massive hedge fund chairmen who used to be very bearish on on Bitcoin and are now putting that on their balance sheets. You've got, you know, even, you know, I, I found it fascinating to see that the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency friendly bank that Berkshire Hathaway put a half a billion dollar investment on is now in the process of, of that, that own bank going public now. And so when when Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, both of whom are are not crypto fans, are going to put a Berkshire Hathaway stake on a bank that is crypto friendly and they're bullish on its future. To my mind, you're right. You're right. I mean, that's that is mainstream. And there are more Bitcoin ETFs pending than any other ETF that's ever been created. Um, so. You know, if we get to the point where the SEC greenlights a domestic U.S. exchange-traded fund that is backed by Bitcoin or any other crypto asset, I mean, it's the floodgates begin to open. Yeah, in in very interesting ways too, and maybe that's a good a good place to to pause because I think that's a very good setup for the current uh, environment. But maybe take us back, and for anybody who is still not clear on what cryptocurrencies are, how blockchain works on in broad strokes of course you know maybe maybe fill in those gaps and then we can kind of jump from there oh man that's a big question um <laughs> it is i mean because um that's why we brought you on that we knew you were up to it <laughs> well i mean 
in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not a tech guy. I'm just I'm just a lawyer, and yes. I have and what what little I understand has come through self education over the course of about four years now. Um, I mean, really at its at its core, a blockchain is simply a software protocol, and what it's a it's a way of keeping track. A blockchain is a way of keeping track of transactions that occur on a network over time. And there are now thousands upon thousands of different blockchains out there. Um, and what really drives a lot of investor interest would be these blockchain projects, if you will, that have some type of economic incentive attached to them. Uh, and that is carried out in the form of crypto asset tokens. Bitcoin, the token, is the economic incentive for participation on the Bitcoin blockchain. Ether is the economic incentive for participating on the Ethereum, to Ethereum blockchain and so on and so forth. And so there are various activities that participants can engage, can engage in on blockchains that are in that are induced by the economic incentive of these crypto asset tokens. So when when Satoshi Nakamoto first released the Bitcoin code to the world, he you know mined the first block on the Bitcoin blockchain back in January of 2009. Um, he did so with the very the the idea behind that was to create a peer-to-peer -peer cash system the ability to for for peers who never know each other who are just are, are transacting with each other digitally to exchange value that was the that was really the use case for bitcoin and through fits and starts it it grew and it expanded and the value has has risen as a result of that network effect but really at the end of the day it is just a um, a peer-to-peer -peer communication system that has an economic incentive attached to it. Yeah, and it and as I understand it, there it has kind of two components. One is a trust component, sort of like a trust but ver verified component, and then the other is a this incentive component. So like you know, by by way of example, is a very probably bad example, and somebody who's actually deep into this would probably tell me this is a horrible example. But if if Matt and Rachel and I created our own network uh, with some sort of blockchain program. Uh, we would each carry a copy of this ledger that is on our blockchain. The ledger just just keeps track of transactions, but we would all have the same ledger. And so when there was a new transaction, we would all go through the same protocols to check that that transaction was properly entered into the ledger. So now we all have the same ledger with the same new transaction. And the incentive for us to spend our time and energy doing that is then we get paid out some sort of token that is a, a piece of the pie of this particular cryptocurrency. And then if now it doesn't it's not as it's not as intuitive for, I think, people transacting in one country like the U.S. with a very fulsome financial institution, because if you have somebody on the other the other side of a transaction, you want to be sure that they have the money to pay you in the transaction. They may be backed up by, say, a bank uh, that has some sort of clearinghouse mechanism where you're pretty you're fairly sure that the money is going to come. But if we're not in that kind of uh, an arrangement we where we have a third party kind of verifying the bona fides of everybody involved, then some arrangement like Matt and Rachel and I have 
could provide that because we all have the exact same verification and we can check and have some certainty that in fact, when I say I can go from step A to B, they can confirm I actually can go from step A to B. So if I'm transacting with somebody who doesn't know me, they can go to Matt and confirm that via Matt and via Rachel. So it, it, as far as I understand it, it has these kind of dualities of, of purpose that then makes it a very interesting platform upon which to build projects and, and cryptocurrencies, to be clear for anybody, that's just one thing. The technology of or the programming of blockchain is sort of the backbone. You can build almost anything on it. Yeah, I think I think where where I'd like to make a slight point of clarification is yes, that I, please I do. You, well, I don't have to trust Brent and Rachel. I don't even have to know Brent and Rachel. All I have to do is trust math. I simply have to trust that that we have an agreed upon set of rules because what what makes a blockchain work is the protocol, which is simply computer code or com computer program that is running on the various nodes, which is another blockchain term. But that's that's where each group is keeping a copy of the ledger. Every participant on a network on a blockchain is keeping a copy of the ledger. And so if you're running a Bitcoin node, for example, you're running the latest version of Bitcoin's software. That software is the agreed upon set of rules that govern the transactions that take place across the Bitcoin network. And so I don't have to know any other user on Bitcoin. I don't have to trust them. I don't have to like them. They could be nefarious people. I don't, I really, it doesn't matter to me. And Bitcoin doesn't care because what we have to, what we have to trust is we have to trust that there is an agreed upon set of rules and any deviation from those rules would cause a transaction to be rejected by the network. That's really all that matters. And so uh, I, I kind of want to make that point of clarification on there. I think that's great. And and I sometimes talking with, say, older lawyers, so pick on lawyers a bit since we're all lawyers, sometimes they're kind of like, yeah, but what is, why would you even want that, this what does this even accomplish? I'm like, well, but you understand this because in the US, we have ledgers, they're called property records, but anybody can record anything in those property records, typically, at least in our state, the people recording those documents, they don't verify that they're accurate, they just record them, that's their job. And then if there's something in the record that's incorrect, you spend a tremendous, tremendous amount of time and title companies require title insurance to insure against these sorts of things, fixing the chain of title issues, okay? But if you have a system that prevents the mistake from happening in the first place, all of a sudden that becomes a much more efficient system. And that is sort of the promise of blockchain technology. And then, of course, it manifests itself in these cryptocurrencies. I, I think that's right. And um, rather than having a human go back through and do a reconciliation of those accounts that no longer match up, it, it happens by operation of, of computer code. And um, really at, at the core of the, of the crypto ethos and of the, certainly of the Bitcoin ethos is this idea of disintermediating human relationships, especially economic human relationships. And I, I find it interesting that, I mean, the more, the more I've thought about this and the more I've been kind of learning from other people, I think it's important for us to realize that here in the US, we see Bitcoin and the broader crypto asset space as, as something that's entirely different than what people in developing countries might might perceive it as. I mean, here in the United States, 
you know, I'll try to avoid any kind of political statements, but we've got a fairly stable um, currency system, endless quantitative easing, perhaps notwithstanding. Um, but we've, got, <laughs> you know, we've, we've got a stable currency system. We've got a we've got a reliable economy, um, and we have the luxury of looking at crypto assets as a really interesting, highly highly volatile investment grade asset that you know worst case scenario whatever we've invested in goes to zero but best case scenario it goes 10x inside of a year i mean so it's you know the asymmetric returns are really interesting for a lot of people but it's in, i think it's important that we look at that issue through the lens of the luxury of living where we live if you are if you live in el salvador for example, you don't even have your own sovereign currency. You're a dollarized nation. And so you have no control over what the United States Federal Reserve does from a monetary policy perspective. You're simply at their mercy. So what do you do? Do you do you hitch your economic train to another sovereign currency that you still have no control over? Do you cr try to create your own? Well, if you could have successfully created your own, you'd still have your own. You wouldn't be a dollarized nation. Um, and so whether it's a good call or a bad call, El Salvador is going to a Bitcoin standard with Bitcoin as recognized legal tender in, in less than 30 days. Um, Bitcoin means something different in Zimbabwe or Colombia or Venezuela or El Salvador than it means in the United States. So um, that's one of the fascinating things about Bitcoin specifically and crypto more generally is that, um, as, as you guys know, to drop another lawyer term out there, crypto is a digital bearer instrument. It's like it's like cash. It's like gold. It's like bearer bonds where possession of the asset is sovereign control over the asset. It's not like you've got a brokerage account at Schwab or, a, you know, you know, something else that is in someone else's custody and you merely have a piece of paper that says you own something. Now, if you own your crypto, if you have your private keys to your crypto, you have sovereign control and you can cross any border anywhere in the world freely um, with that wealth in your pocket. And for a lot of people in developing countries who don't have a reliable fiat currency system, that becomes a really compelling use case. That's a really good point, Matt. I never really thought about it in that way and kind of just the differing views between how, how we see it in the U.S. and a lot of, you know, especially millennial investors, um, given my age, and in how other, you know, individuals in developing nations can really see it. And I think, you know, when we've talked about crypto before, the biggest appeal to me, too, is like it, it's like you're saying, it's opening up the market, right? You're allowing all of these other nations to finally be able to transact business a lot more easily with one another. And I think the biggest thing, and to your point, Brent, earlier, is just the efficiency of it, right? You know, before when you've got these ledgers and you've got something that gets messed up along the way, you have all that time and expenditure to fix that problem. Whereas here, you can clearly see where the error is. And so it makes transactions so much more faster. And when you think about in our realm of the world, when we're dealing with high net worth clients, if they are having big transactions, tens of millions of dollars, it's not going to get done with just, you know, just a flick of the wrist kind of thing, even though, of course, a lot of money can push things a little bit faster. It's still <laughs> going to take time. And when you've got crypto and you've got this own 
system that takes out that third party, it's a lot more efficient for all the parties to be able to transact business. Yeah, you know, um, that that's I think that's right on. One of the things that I've found very surprising is where these clients come from. My first my first client that really that really introduced us to the crypto asset space um, is a millennial. I mean, he's a very successful millennial entrepreneur and quite famously spent his last ten thousand dollars on Bitcoin around 2013. Um, and before long, I mean, he was just learning and learning and learning and building companies backed by Bitcoin, generating Bitcoin. I mean, the whole bit. And uh, by the time he came to us for some sophisticated tax oriented estate planning, this guy was probably about 34, 35 ish, something like that, worth about 150 million um, with real estate, direct custody Bitcoin, a handful of other uh, tokens that are out there and a few companies that are in the crypto asset space. So that, you know, because I was introduced to the world of crypto through that client, I kind of had a tendency to to be looking through that lens. But over the course of the last three or four years where this has become the dominant part of my practice, I've had clients who are in their 50s who, when they divorced, had thousands and thousands of Bitcoins. I've had clients in their 70s whose 94-year-old father started buying Bitcoin in 2014. Um, I've had clients who have successfully taken a company public and have been have spent the last 10 years living off of conventional exchange traded funds and muni bond portfolios and doing quite well until we did a series of grats for her last year. And now she wants outsized the portfolio performance to blow out the 75-20 rate. So she's looking for a Bitcoin allocation in some of her grantor retained annuity trusts. We've got a client who's doing a charitable remainder trust funded with Bitcoin. We've got a client um, that I was talking to today who is a founder of an ERC-20 project, which is an Ethereum-based project. He's worth about half a billion dollars, uh, and he wants to create a charitable DAO, a de decentralized autonomous organization. And so um, these clients are everywhere. The money is unbelievable amounts of wealth these folks have. And one of the things I find, I mean, honestly, I find this most gratifying is that in my experience to a person, every single one of these clients is a first generation wealth builder. They didn't, they didn't come from a lot of wealth. They don't know a lot of wealth. They don't live like they've got a ton of wealth, although some of them are getting used to the wealth. Um, but by and large, they simply want to make the world a better place. They want to be responsible and they want to, they want to find this mainstreaming opportunity for this nascent and exciting asset class. And the fact that we as advisors, you guys, your listeners, me, we all have the ability now, we have the opportunity to find this home in the um, kind of stodgy, old-fashioned estate planning world that I inhabit and this exciting nascent asset class that is truly transformative. I mean, I, it's these clients are all over the place and there is a dearth of experienced estate planning attorneys, financial advisors, CPAs, wealth advisors who know anything about what they're talking about in this space. Yep, I would agree. Or that even know 
really how any of this even on a on in broad strokes uh, operates to even know what NFT means. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's that level uh, yeah. for most of the people that I interact with. I, you know, I, I've been having a lot of conversations with other lawyers and practitioners and I keep telling them, I'm like, well, first of all, they'll kind of, if cryptocurrencies come up, they, a lot of times they'll kind of laugh like, oh yeah, cryptocurrencies, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, do, it's do, like do, this do, joke, do, right? Do, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I keep telling them, I say, well, yeah, maybe there was a point in time where, you know, take Bitcoin or Ethereum as examples. Maybe there was a point in time where Bitcoin or Ethereum were, you know, there was no guarantee that these things were going to be around. I was like, fine. But there is so much economy that is now built on and surrounding and reliant on these assets. They are not going to go away. In fact, if they go to zero, we're all in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Like that is a very bad thing for everybody economically. If Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and a few of the other big cryptocurrencies go to zero because there's so much economy that's built on these. There's so much industry built on them. There's so much money coming into them. And there's so much kind of innovation that's happening on those platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. The um, I was pulling up a site here just to double check my numbers here. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as of right now, Bitcoin's total global total global market cap is over eight hundred and forty billion dollars. <laughs> Realize that Bitcoin was launched January third of two thousand and eight. Excuse me, two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine. Yeah. So it's yeah. gone from zero to an eight hundred and forty billion dollar market cap in twelve years. I mean, that's that alone is obscene. That is and obscene. Then, and then it spawned, it has now spawned an entire crypto asset market that not even counting NFTs, which may, hopefully we get a chance to chat about a little bit, but not even counting NFTs is nearly a two trillion dollar industry. It's it won't go to zero. It can't go to zero. Some of the projects, I'd say probably ninety percent of the projects will go to zero. Mm-hmm. But the the big ones, they Bitcoin doesn't care what happens from a regulatory perspective because it's traded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The markets never close and it is global. And we've seen when China, for example, recently and quite famously shut down mining operations in some of the key provinces in in China, Bitcoin certainly took a hit. Did it die? No, it's if you look at Bitcoin's total return over the course of the last 30 days, which include that period, it's still up and it's up significantly. So yes, U.S. investors can make a huge impact on the crypto asset markets just simply because of the dollars we represent. But to your point and to the point that we've been talking about with the number of ETFs that are in application process right now with folks like Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, oh God, uh, Just Capital, MicroStrategy, even Tesla, all these companies that are adding it to uh, adding Bitcoin directly to its to their balance sheet. Art, you got Art Capital with Kathy Wood. I mean, you got massive, massive investments in crypto. If attorneys and and broad, more broadly, if wealth practitioners don't get up to speed pretty quickly, you're going to be left behind. I mean, it's 
the, the world is moving more quickly than we can even keep up with. And if you're not learning now, you're losing ground. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the point. It's the, the, the speed of innovation in that space in particular mm-hmm. is it's so fast. I mean, us lawyers, I feel so bad for us. We're so slow at everything. <laughs> we are like we're slow at everything. We're afraid of everything. We, you know, we jump at our own shadows. Yeah. And this stuff is moving at light. Whatever speed. it is, it won't work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Question everything. Right. Just be this cynic, you know, this you have this like cynicism about everything in the world. But this stuff is moving so quickly. And and I've been I mean, I've been having conversations with lawyers kind of talking about like the challenges of these kinds of assets, trying to explain that they are real assets and then trying to explain you don't understand the nature of assets is going to change. That's right. That's what we're, you're going to have to try to plan for, you know, unless you're 70 years old and you're going to be either dead or retired. But the nature of assets is going to change. That's what's happening. And it's going to happen a lot faster than I think people realize. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think that this is the kind of thing that you better you either better learn or you better get really good at your golf game because you're going to be playing a lot of golf. I mean, it's um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you said that right on. This is, I mean, we are at a technological and economic and geopolitical inflection point. I mean, this is, you know, I I get a little philosophical about this stuff, and I do a lot of reading on these types of things, but I believe that we are at a significant inflection point where everything changes. This is the um, this is the economic revolution, if you will, or the technological economic revolution. And I put that in the context of like the industrial revolution. Um, this is, there's a lot, there are a lot of authors out there that have done a ton of research and a ton of writing around phases into which uh, humanity kind of falls and how our society evolves over time. There is the agricultural revolution where we go from being hunters and gatherers to now farming a plot of land. And then we go into more of an industrial revolution and that type of stuff. And the idea is that the time, the time frames shrink as we become more evolved as societies. And there's an interesting argument, I believe, that we are now we, – we are maturing in the information revolution. It started with the advent of email and mobile communication and microprocessing, and it's now amplified with e-commerce and the whole dot com thing, and then uh, when Bitcoin successfully launched in 2009 and and created a provable use case for this nascent technology called blockchain with an economic incentive attached to it called a crypto asset, it really um, and, and now that it has gone several years now 12 years in to prove that it's it's reliable, ownership is. We can understand ownership through private keys. We can understand it through wallets. There's now a global exchange system figured out. There's now derivatives that are trading based off of these assets. I, I think that we are at this. I, I, we, I think that we're sitting in this at the beginning days of a new transition. And to your point of everything changing from a lawyer's perspective, I think we have to recognize the fact that we are analog humans living in a digital world. And the the mindsets and the solutions that we have brought forth to this point with conventional assets, we've got to really rethink how those work in this entirely new 
in, in this entirely new asset space. And there's a lot of the ethos behind crypto that runs headlong into the way we as lawyers tend to view various legal strategies. So it's, I mean, the world is kind of upside down. Well, we teed up, uh, we teed up in uh, NFTs a bit. So maybe we should try again in our lawyerly uh, clunky way to explain what they are. Um, None of us being uh, actual tech people, but non-fungible tokens is the acronym for NFTs. If anybody hasn't heard that, but in, in essence, it, it is a it is that is a token similar to like a cryptocurrency would could be a, a token that shows your ownership of something and non fungible, meaning it's not it's not tangible. You can't touch it now. Imagine that is everything <laughs> like that is anything could be represented by a non even a, a tangible thing can be represented by a non fungible token. And the best analogy that I can think of for my pea brain to understand that we all, especially as estate planners are familiar with, are partnerships. Partnerships, typically they're not they're not even certificated, meaning there's no, like you don't transfer paper between each other to transfer ownership. All you really do is record changes in assignments and on partner, partner ledgers and things like that. That's somewhat similar, although not identical to an NFT. You've got something that is intangible that represents your ownership could be a ownership of actual tangible things and you have a contract that's attached to it that tells you what your rights are in the thing that you own and if as i understand nfts which is like a really broad even thing to say because nfts can be so many things but in broad strokes that's basically what it is it's an intangible ownership that has a contract attached to it a quote-unquote smart contract very akin, although not identical to partnerships. Yeah, I mean, I think um, where where I think it's worth kind of peeling back a little bit is that it's kind of we we can wind our way all the way back to our property our property law classes in law school because um, I think that's Rachel's where Rachel's heart is just like pounding. I can see her; she's sweating. Don't I know. say the rule against perpetuities, <laughs> whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can say it, but I can't explain it. Um, <laughs> But um, there's this whole concept of fungibility and things that are fungible and things that are not fungible. And I, what, I, what I remember is that scoops of grain or, or kernels of corn are fungible. It doesn't matter. One scoop of corn is the same as any other scoop of corn. One scoop of grain is the same as any other scoop of grain. In the context of crypto assets, Bitcoin, for example, is a fungible token. A third of one Bitcoin is not unique from a third of any other Bitcoin. It doesn't matter what Bitcoin you have a third of. You've got a third of a Bitcoin. Um, Non-fungible tokens are tokens that are digitally unique. Maybe it's one of one. Maybe it's one of a thousand. Brent, to your point, maybe it is a one one thousandth ownership interest of a limited partnership. It might be um, a one of one of a digital lithograph. It might be a one of one or a one of five of an in-game creature or experience in a video game like um, Ready Player One, if you're, you know, folks are familiar with that at all. And so the idea is that a non-fungible token is a digital asset that is unique in all the world. It's, it's one of a series of discrete pieces. Maybe it's one of one, maybe it's one of a thousand, but it's like it's like you go to a gallery 
you buy a print and that print is one of a hundred. Okay, well, a print that's one of a hundred may be worth more than a print that's one of a thousand. It may be worth less than one that's one of 10. Um, of course, it depends on the market. It depends on the audience. Um, but a non-fungible token is simply a digital representation of value that is unique in all the world. And where I see this in, in some of the client cases that I'm seeing is I've got my first client who has a non-fungible token bought a one-of-one -one golden ticket for his favorite recording artist. And so there's no show anywhere in the world that will be sold out to my client. So the client bought the one-of-one -one golden ticket for whatever this recording artist is. A Kings of Leon earlier, famously this year, released a new album as a non-fungible token. And so rather than download their album or their song from the iTunes store, where you only have a license to listen to that song or that album subject to the terms and conditions of the iTunes store, you now have an ownership right of a token that is now a property right that is subject to succession for you in the event you become incapacitated or in the event you die. So to your point, Brent, about changing everything, we now have an entire world of assets that um, are digitally unique to which ownership and property rights attach. And so we as lawyers have to then think about, okay, what are the property what are the property rights that we've got to think through from an estate planning perspective to then make sure that these assets pass down intelligently to our spouse, our partner, uh, the next generation, a charity we care about, whatever. And sometimes those assets can be set up so that the originator retains something in that asset. So every, you know, and I don't know if this is the way your client's golden ticket was, but let's say if that golden ticket said the artist gets a percentage of every future sale of that golden ticket. Well, that's a very good thing for the artist. And that would make a lot of sense for an artist who right now, you know, let's say they they go sell tickets to the concert. The concert has happens once it's over. It's done. That's it. Somebody takes their ticket. They sell it on Ticketmaster. The, the artist gets none of that money. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So it gives the artist some way to get a piece of that those future transactions. Well, now imagine that it's not an artist. It's a real estate owner. They own vacant land that's going to be developed and they can sell the vacant, the ownership of the vacant land as an NFT and retain an interest in every transaction in the future that has a piece of that vacant land. So, you know, subdivided and developed. Now the family own, instead of there being a one-time transaction, and, and we all see this in our practices, a one-time transaction where they, you know, they sell the farm and now the farm has been sold for $10 million. It's not a one-time transaction. It's a one-time transaction that has a tail on it. Mm -hmm. And now how do you manage this tail possibly for a very, very long period of time? That is, and I'm not even very creative and I could see that revolutionizing what we do. I'm like the least sophisticated person to be talking about this stuff. And I can see that kind of thing will just totally change our practice. Uh, you know, you're right on. I mean, I think um, what what where we are right now, I believe, in the non-fungible token or NFT space is it's it's like where we were in 2018 when initial coin offerings or ICOs were coming out. And you had a lot of little companies that rather than go through all the hoops of registering their securities with the SEC 
they said, hey, you know what? Just, I don't know, just give us a couple hundred thousand bucks and we'll dump a bunch of tokens on you. And oh, no, it's not a security. Well, yeah, it was most likely. But, um, you know, it it proved a use case and it, it tested the limits of things. And some people got their hands slapped. And um, but it, it kind of started to test the the theory for alternative ways to buy into a company. Well, I think what we're seeing right now in the non-fungible token space is we are starting to see crazy use cases out there. A lot of them are going to be completely terrible ideas, um, but there are going to be some really interesting ideas that will change, to your point, will change everything. And what we're seeing right now in the gaming space, and I'm not a gamer, I'm 50 years old, um, but one of the really interesting use cases right now around non-fungible tokens is in the massive online gaming world. And I've got a client right now who, surprisingly, is not a whole lot younger than me, who's got $4 million worth of in-game non-fungible tokens. And so I asked this guy, I said, what is this all about? I mean, what, what, what's the point? And he said, well, there's a marketplace that's part of the gamers community here. And he bought these as initial launch assets. And through gameplay, this guy's a massive gamer, through gameplay, he can level up these various assets. And then, this is crazy, not only could he sell it on a marketplace, but Brent, kind of to your point, he can rent those assets in the yeah. game to other players and get a yield. So he can actually say, I'm gonna I'm gonna rent this monster because Rachel wants to borrow this monster for a campaign. She's gonna pay me X tokens for the use of that. And so I get a yield off of that. And at the end of this, and so this is part of the smart contracts, at the end of the duration that I've lent that to her, I get the asset back. So I can get a yield. I've got the initial value. If I ever want to part with my asset, I can part with that on an open exchange. But in the meantime, I can play my game. I can build my assets and there's an economic component attached to it. Guys, I got to tell you, I think that's crazy. I mean, I think that's, that's nuts. Yeah, yeah. that I, it would not be me spending the money on that. However, I just said that and I have been convinced to spend Robux on roadblocks skins for my kids for the yeah. last several years. And it's real money. They definitely want to spend real money in that game. And it's exactly that. Now, I don't know if my kids can sell these skins. I'm really hoping to get a little bit of the residuals back someday, but I'm <laughs> or you're not holding my breath. Clean bedroom or the, the, <laughs> yeah, just right. something. I mean, at least you got to get something out of the deal. Something. Yeah, but I mean, oh, to, man. to your point, though, I mean, it's that's a crazy use case. Yeah. It's a, but it's a real use case, but it is starting to prove the viability of digitizing assets that are unique in the world. Um, and there are companies right now that are tokenizing real estate, not just vacant land, but tokenizing commercial properties that have been developed. And so rather than perhaps you buying into a syndication or buying into a partnership that owns a piece of real estate, you could buy tokens that represent a fractional share of an entity and it's and you have the bearer instrument of that. It's we've seen I've got I'm working with a client right now who is a well-known photographer who's been doing sports photography. They've done concert photography. They've covered the Victoria's Secret line for a long time. 
over a span of almost 30 years and going from analog film and negatives and print to now the digital space, they have launched a non-fungible token platform where you can go buy a, you can go mint a one of one or one of a hundred or whatever of a unique picture of LeBron James, for example, up close and personal with a black mask on because he was playing with a broken nose. Well, first of all, the NBA no longer allows players to play with a uh, with an opaque mask. So that there's uniqueness right there. It's a limited type of photo. It's up. It's very much up close in this era of COVID. Probably not going to get very many up close photos anymore. Um, so, and how many more times is LeBron James going to play with a broken nose? So it's a rare photo in itself. You can go and pay for the minting of unique ownership of that photograph. And it's, I'm telling you, then, then you can put that up on a gallery somewhere and you can tokenize the value of people viewing your photo on a gallery, like what Mark Cuban of the Mavericks is building. I mean, it's, I know this is, it kind of makes your head explode when you think about where this industry is right now and where it's come just in a very short period of time. But that's why I continue to posit that, that we are sitting at the point of inflection in our careers and perhaps uh, in a generation, unlike anything we've ever seen before. Yep. Well, you've got two, uh, two believers here, Matt. We could talk to you about this literally all day, but we won't because uh, you're busy and we're busy and people listening to this are busy. But we cannot thank you enough for spending time with us on this topic. If people are trying to reach you, what's the preferred way for them to do that? Uh, you, you know, probably the best way to reach me would be uh, either through our website, which is www.evergreenlegacyplanning.com, or they can reach me through LinkedIn. They can just do a search for Matt McClintock or Matthew T. McClintock. And I, I would ask that they'd reference your podcast just to kind of give me a sense for for where they found me. Um, yeah, I, I geek out on this stuff. I love it. I mean, I love the world of estate planning. I love... I'm nerdy. I love the world of tax, but I mean, I really love this whole world of crypto assets. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd, I would be happy to connect with anybody who wants to learn more about this stuff. I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, certainly is. And we certainly appreciate you, Matt. Thank you again for spending time with us. Oh, it's been a great honor. Thanks a lot for having me. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.